Hello, and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name is Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well, wherever you may be. Today we hear from Anna Frick, showrunner of the CW's new take on Chuck Norris' 90s action crime drama Walker, Texas Ranger, and exec producer Gina Carter and director Michael Samuels about Viaplay and Channel 4 psychological thriller Close to Me, filmed in the eye of the COVID-19 crisis. Anna Frick started her career writing for Dawson's Creek and is best known for adapting British drama Being Human for US audiences. With her latest series Walker launching today on The CW, she spoke to Michael Pickard about rebooting Chuck Norris's 90s action crime drama Walker Texas Ranger alongside star and exec producer Jared Padalecki. She also discussed life as a showrunner during the pandemic. We are filming, we are healthy. <laughs> we're, we're doing the best we can. And I, I mean, I gather from the pilot, you're filming in Austin, are you? Or where are you? Where's where's the show sort of set and, and being filmed? Yes, we are filming in Austin. That's where everyone is. I, I am in Los Angeles, basically in this room all the time. <laughs> but yeah, we're, we're up and filming in Austin. And so, I mean, talk to me about being a showrunner in a, in a global pandemic. How are you managing the show? I guess normally you'd be hands-on overseeing everything. How are you doing that from your home in LA? It's very bizarre. I mean, we're, I, we're all in the same boat. It's a real adjustment. Um, it's an adjustment on the writer's side because I'm, I'm someone who very much, I, I love being in the writer's room and interacting with the writers and, and you know, meeting daily. And we, we still do that on Zoom, but we've been on Zoom. Um, we, were, we met in person twice and we've been been in a Zoom room since March 13th. And it's just bizarre. You know, there are some some writers, I never even met them in person um, because they joined us later. So we're wrapping up the writer's room this month, which is bizarre. I'll obviously go on and continue producing the show. But so the, the writer's that that process is very different. And and just producing the show, I'm incredibly grateful for our producing team and our crew. Um, you know, we have a producing director who's my partner there on the ground, Steve Robin. And I, I'm just so glad that we made the choices that we did in the before times of, of the people we decided to work with because we're all just in very close communication with each other at all times. You know, the, like there have been days that I'm just being carried around on an iPad pad <laughs> on set. Um, and we just have a very good communication. And also with Jared being on as an executive producer, that that's really great because he and I just have a very healthy line of communication and are very open with each other. So I do feel as connected as I can be, but it is different. And I mean, I guess broadcast TV, a lot of the focus is on the writer's room because you normally have, you know, 22, 24 episodes a year to produce. And have you just got 13 or what when you went straight to series, what was the order that you had? When we went straight to series, it was 13 and we have um, a total of 18 scripts ordered. Okay, um, so there's a possibility that we'll film 18. So I was just going to ask then about being in a writer's room. I mean, I guess, you know, I've spoken to showrunners and, and they've sort of said it's a great place to kind of be open and there's no such thing as a bad idea. And, and you know, people can really, you know, spend a lot of time talking about story. Do you find that's the same on, on Zoom? And, and are you able to be frank and honest about characters and story when I guess people are all sitting there trying to talk, but you can't really because you're on Zoom and it's, it's a challenging environment for those conversations? Yeah. Yes, it, it definitely is. I think we all got used to it 
fairly quickly. I, I remember the first day we were in this format, we were like, oh, what? And there's definitely a lot of like, you know, you can't read someone's body language in the same way, or it's hard to tell sometimes when someone is about to talk or things like that. And so people will, you know, they'll raise their hands or we've all kind of learned how to communicate. Um, I do think, because it, it is, as you said, it, it's really important to me as a showrunner to create that safe space and to be very open. I always try to overshare so that people feel safe. And I will say, just given where we are in the world and everything that's happened in the past year, it's forced us all to be very authentic because you can't, no one can ignore what's going on. And so I'm very grateful for that. And I think it's brought us as a group of writers closer together, even though we're in this Zoom room, but we definitely have shared and have been very open. I cry all the time, you know, like I think everyone's been given the space to have their feelings because you have to. And it's, you know, that's what's been difficult to navigate in a way, just in terms of managing a group of people to to come into a Zoom room at 10 o'clock in the morning and, and sometimes just be like, how are you today? And let that conversation go for an hour. And then like, eventually we have to get back into the storytelling, but it's been a lot of, how are you? <laughs> so, yeah. How are you really? <laughs> No, it's, it's, it must be tough, absolutely. And um, and I mean, just then in terms of Walker, I mean, I guess considering it's a reboot or a reimagining of the original show, it's not a show that's, I guess, maybe that far out of public consciousness. So why was this a, a character or a, a property that you felt needed to come back and, and sort of be retold for maybe a new generation or a new audience? Well, CBS had the title and Jared uh, was excited about this character. You know, he, he could have never worked again. You know, <laughs> sometimes I, I, I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> uh, but he was really excited about this character and and initially you know I I watched I saw the show when I was a kid I, I wasn't like I must bring this character to life but I do know Jared and I was interested in what he wanted to say um, and so when he and I first sat down and talked about it I realized that there was a lot of potential here I mean because if you look at my resume it's not like you'd automatically think oh this is <laughs> Like, Anne Fricky needs to do the reboot of this show. I'm not, you know, your go-to procedural writer. But the conversations that he wanted to have for the character and the stories he wanted to tell um, about a man who is, as he says, the edge of the coin and having these conversations in modern-day America, those those things are very interesting to me. And so, I mean, it sounds like he's been very hands-on then, you know, from the beginning. So what is that partnership like for you as the showrunner when your star is also an EP and and heavily invested in not just his performance, but you know, the, obviously the whole show. It's great. I mean, it's it's been a learning process because I've never I've never done a show where one of the actors was an EP, and so for me, it, it's it's been a process of Am I bothering you? You're so busy. I know that you worked 14 hours today. Do you want to have this conversation? So there's been a sort of just a, a learning curve of how much to involve Jared, when to bring him in on something, um, and I have learned he wants all the information. Uh, he says, just give me all the information. He doesn't like to be surprised. And so, you know, I, I, I try to keep him him posted on things and bring him in to stories and ideas early on. And he's especially been really fantastic with talking about casting because um, there are, in addition to the, to the core cast we have, you know, several characters come in to the season who play very important roles and his point of view on the casting process and who would best complement the who would best complement the cast has been incredibly useful. And he has a lot of really intel intelligent insight. And so what is 
the idea behind this new series? What are kind of some of the themes, the stories that you wanted to tell with, I guess, Walker at the centre of, um, you know, the story? Because we see, obviously, the pilot, he's come back. So he's kind of building bridges with his family, but he's also still in this, you know, very demanding job and he has a new partner. And, and so what are kind of, what's the, the idea behind the story of, of, you know, that we'll see going forward? Like I said before, it is it is very much a family show and I am interested, um, <laughs> like, imposing my feminist agenda. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I, I am really interested in the role of Walker as a father. You know, I'm telling the story as, as a working mother and a wife of Walker coming in, coming back into his family and pulling them together and realizing it's not enough just to physically be there, but for him to take on the role of both parents and sort of appreciate what a father and a mother does and how to raise your children in that way. That's that's very interesting to me. I think Walker in general is a man who's learning. Like he's just learning a lot. He's learning how to parent. Like this is someone who his job is so all consuming. You know, Stella says to him in the pilot, like you were never in the first couple episodes, like you were never here. Even when you were here, you were never really here because mom just did everything. And so he's learning how he has to truly be there, how he has to see his children, see what they're going through. Um, And on the work front, you know, I I will say with everything that's happened in 2020, uh, I was wary writing a law enforcement show, honestly. And I soon came to understand actually we unwittingly set ourselves up to tell very responsible stories and hopefully compelling stories with walker having a mexican-american female partner and having a black boss and that the point captain james has taken this job hoping to reform the department that was his goal um so that was all baked into the idea of the show. And we realized that with the character of Walker, we can really show him as what he is, which is a white man who's grown up with that privilege. And he's being forced to examine things of how do you think you're doing? Really? How do you think you're doing? So those are the stories that we explore over the course of the season. And, and will we see that in the, I guess, the kind of case of the week elements as well, kind of maybe topical themes coming up? Or is it, like you say, those longer character arcs that those topical issues will come through yes it's it's a it's it's longer character arcs and you know i think as lindsay morgan said like we're still entertainment you know we're, we're not here to be preachy or to impose any particular agenda we're here to have conversations but but walker over the course of the season does think about who he is as, as a man and who he is as a ranger so that's sort of like a longer arc and i mean just in you mentioned Lindsay as as mickey there i mean what how important is her character in, in the show, do you think, in, in terms of television generally, the fact that she says, you know, that she's one of the first female Texas Rangers and a Mexican-American as well. I mean, how important is that for the show, but also for just diversity generally? I think it's it's incredibly important. And someone pointed out that uh, Mickey actually does a lot more of the ass kicking. And <laughs> I, I didn't even realize I was doing it. <laughs> but I, I do tend to like give those moments to her because I'm excited to, to like show her in that role. Um, her it, It's definitely very important. And we have um, her 
her mother is a character who will come onto the show and her mother really disapproves of her being in this job um, as a Mexican-American growing up in Texas. The, the Texas Rangers have, a, you know, a very complicated history, especially, you know, with Mexicans. And so uh, for Mickey to take this job, like Mickey sees it as I'm going to fix the problem from the inside out. I'm here to make change. And her mother sort of can't believe that she's in law enforcement. But I, I think it's a very interesting dynamic. And I imagine, obviously, Jared's got a lot of fans at the CW, but I was interested that this is a CW show. And, and I guess the CW these days, I guess you, you think they're more for their superhero shows and, and things like that. So have you had to CW CW the show to kind of make it fit their audience or, or their what they want from a Walker show rather than if this had been on NBC, CBS? Oh, that's interesting. I, you know, I will see. I'm interested to see how it's received. Um, for me... Like I said, uh, I come from like the WB back in the day, like Dawson's Creek, Everwood. Those are the shows that I cut my teeth on. And that's sort of where I'm coming from, from a storytelling point of view, is a sort of nostalgic family show. And when I say family, I I, I always worry that family show makes it sound like it's going to be soft or, you know, that there's not going to be a lot of intrigue. I mean more like you could watch this with other members of your household and it's not going to be inappropriate. And I sort of feel like there's something for everybody. So, I mean, the CW show, I think the network is, is character forward and hopefully that's what we're delivering. Um, I, I hope it sticks. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And um, I guess some of the things when you're in production now, I mean, what would you tell us just about how the show's made and, and what are the challenges in, in making a show like Walker? Is it some of the action scenes? Is it getting those scripts in shape so you have the character arcs plus the procedural elements? What are some of the, the kind of the obstacles or the, the thinking points that you have to get over as a showrunner? Oh, yes. I mean, being straight to series has its challenges because, yeah. you know, we're several, we were several scripts in when we started filming and you, and you learn as you're filming, oh, this works on our show and this doesn't. Like we've learned, for example, we have cases, but the cases uh, work better story-wise when there's a real personal connection to the character. Like we're not a show, we're not like a heavy procedural show. And so anytime we've tried to do bigger cases that are not really connected, it doesn't land as well. And so, you know, we've been learning that, you know, it's act six is always a big emotional family moment. It's not a takedown, you know, I, it's usually like, I, I know that the episode is successful if I'm crying in act six <laughs> uh, because there's a fireside moment or something like that. Um, but the challenges of, of filming in this way, you know, obviously with the pandemic, everything is very different. We, we have to move fast. We have, you know, smaller crews in there. We don't do crowd scenes or at the moment, particularly, we don't do huge stunts because there aren't hospital beds. And so you don't want to take a big risk of someone getting injured. We just can't do that right now. Um, changes the way we approach intimacy. It, it's it's just, it, which affects storytelling in ways that you didn't expect. Like you're used to having a kiss be an act out and like, well, what do you do if they can't kiss? <laughs> so so it's, it's pushed us in creative ways. Oh, I did notice uh, there's a nice mix in the first episode um, of kind of those urban landscapes with Austin. And, and then you still have, uh, I guess, the Western kind of vistas that we might expect. So have you had to kind of think about the visual style as well in terms of, you know, what Texas is and, and how, you know, directors will, will come to that landscape? Yes, definitely. Um, we, we're just so lucky that we're actually shooting Texas for Texas. Um, as you know, on TV, a lot of times we're pretending that Vancouver is someplace else. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, it's not Vancouver, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's always Vancouver. Um, so 
we're we're really lucky to to be where we're saying we are, and we definitely want to be. You know, the Texas sky is so specific. The Texas roads and the, the whole landscape is is very specific, and so we are trying to show that. Um, and we're also trying to. I admittedly, I will get a little carried away with. I, I so love depicting the ranch life and the Walker Ranch House and the horses and the vistas that the studio and the network will then say to me, can we see more of this looking a little rural? <laughs> can, can we remind people that we're also in the city? Um, so we're, we're really trying to show the, the eclectic nature of Austin itself and really make Austin a character on the show. And I noticed, you know, from some of the credits, you know, you mentioned Being Human and Red Band Society and uh, Minority Report. I guess they're all takes on existing material. Is there a secret source to getting that right? You know, a reboot or a reimagining and, and keeping enough of what people might remember to updating it for a new audience? What what have you tried to do on Walker to ensure that, you know, enough people are, you know, enjoy it for a second? time while also inviting new new viewers to come and, and get to know the characters well i think for me the the approach to projects like that um like speaking to something like being human for example is to approach it with love like what do i love about this and to respect that without trying to copy it i sort of like with being human i sort of consumed it and then put it out of my mind you know it's like i i don't i didn't want to reference it i didn't want to keep checking back on it it's like just what did i love and try to be faithful to that and i think that's true with this show it's like what do we love about the idea of cordell walker and trying to show a man who's a bit of a maverick and has a sense of humor and And we've got action and some high octane stuff and also a lot of heart and just trying to look forward to it in that way of like what people might expect when they come to the show and giving them that, but also opening up the character more in ways that maybe people didn't expect. And and just finally, I mean, um, you know, Dawson's Creek, obviously, I remember watching Dawson's Creek when I was uh, younger and it's, I mean, still a huge touch point for a lot of people. I mean, is that something you'd ever consider revisiting or other other projects that you think, you know, are ripe for, I guess, nostalgic, uh, you know, updates maybe? Oh, I mean, yeah, that was, Dawson's Creek was my first job. I'm, I'm incredibly, nostalgic about that that was like school for me you know I I was there for four years I I learned everything from that group of people you know and those are still my closest friends the people I met on that show so it's that's incredibly nostalgic I mean I'm not in charge of revisiting that but (laughs) but I, I I was saying um Rena Mamoon, who ran Everwood after Greg Berlanti, is one of my best friends, and, and she and I have done multiple projects together since then. So we're, we're always trying to sort of revisit that time and, and recreate that in various ways. I mean, what, what were some of the things you learned on Dawson's that have maybe stood you in, in good stead for, you know, the, the rest of your, you know, su- obviously successful career now helming uh, Walker? I, I mean, Greg Berlanti, who was running it when I was there, uh, is one of the greatest teachers of all time in terms of breaking story. And I will always remember, you know, we would, um, the the way we broke story there and, and, you know, Greg sort of trickled down to how Rena Mamoon ran a room and then how I ran a room. So it's, it's all like from that school of thought, which is just basically very character forward. And I will always remember um, Greg one day coming into the writer's room at Dawson's Creek. And, you know, we had all these beats up on the board and we had already like broken out a lot of the story because sometimes people, people will do that first of like plot points or things like that. And Greg was very character forward. And I remember one day he came in and erased the whole board and just wrote down Pacey Joey. <laughs> and it was like, focus on 
what moments you want to see. And, and always on that show, we would start off the week with blue skies and we would talk about scenes in no particular order, we called it, of just what are the moments you care about. And it's really thinking about those moments and the heart of the character first as opposed to what's the act out. Anna Frick, talking to Michael Picard. Nent Studios UK's first original scripted drama, psychological thriller Close to Me, was filmed in the eye of the COVID-19 crisis, one of the first British productions to begin shooting after the first UK lockdown in spring 2020. Executive producer Gina Carter and director Michael Samuels spoke to Michael Pickard about the challenges they faced on the Viaplay and Channel 4 series and the lessons learned from it they plan to bring forward to future projects. I'm Michael Samuels and, uh, and I'm the director. I'm Gina Carter, the executive producer. So um, do you want to just both give us an introduction to, to Close To Me, just give us a flavour of, of the story and, and what we can look forward to watching? Um, so Close To Me starts off with a woman played by Connie Nielsen who's just fallen down the stairs or is at the, at the bottom of the stairs. She's quite badly injured and it turns out that she's lost about a year's worth of memories. And so our film, our six part series is basically about her recovering those memories and also trying to work out how she fell down the stairs. Did she fall down? Was she pushed? Did she do it to herself? And in the process, realising that the year that she can't remember, quite uh, dramatic things happened during that year. And she gradually gets those memories back and she starts to suspect people around her. But the issue is what is happening inside her own head? How much of it is paranoia? How much of it is her imagining things and how much of it is real? So it plays on that sort of, on one level, it's, it's, a, it's a mystery. How did she fall down the stairs? What were the circumstances? On another level, it's excavating her life and excavating that year and finding out more about her and finding out more what led to the circumstances where she ended up at the bottom of the stairs. So it's a thriller, but it's also a thriller where we find out about the psychology of our central character. I mean, what, what was it about, I guess, the project that both of you uh, you know, were interested in to, to join and, and what was that early initial uh, development process like for you both? Um, so, the, so the series is based on a novel of the same name um, by Amanda Reynolds, close to me. <laughs> which was uh, developed at the development partnership of Robert Taylor and with a writer called Angela Pell. Um, now, I've worked with Angela Pell before on a feature film called Snowcake uh, that we made um, with Sigourney Weaver and Alan Rickman, which was which was fantastic experience working with Angela on that. And I think when um, Robert was getting close to this being financed, me having worked with Angela before, um, and this is a, was a, her sort of second big project since that film, uh, so we had a relationship, and also the lead character in this project is played by Connie Nielsen, who is uh, a sort of similar, um, how should I put it, a time in life as me, age, menopausal, all that sort of stuff. And it was about that. And so it seemed like a really nice for us to kind of all work together exploring um, this woman that not only is going through all this kind of personal trauma, physical trauma, but also going through the trauma of um, her changing physicality, her changing body and everything that the menopause brings in. So Connie Nielsen came on um, as an executive producer as well. So actually, it was a really lovely fit for me to work with Connie and Angela um, across the script. And it was through that process of, it must have been towards the end of 2019 that we were looking for a director that could come in and sort of work with us further on developing the project. And it was through that process that we found Michael. So yeah, that's how that's how we sort of got to that point. And then we brought Michael in, who had, I think, um, sentiment-wise, is that, is that the right word? Sentiment-wise, felt absolutely like the right foot, not a sentimental, but sentiment-wise 
was having watched two of my favourite shows that um, I've ever seen on television, which was Any Human Heart, which I absolutely loved. And the particularly memorable to me was the character that Kim Cattrall played, which really made me feel that Michael was a great pick for this. But also I had seen um, Man in Orange Shirt, which as Michael knows, I absolutely <laughs> rave about constantly because I think it was just beautiful storytelling. Um, and again, it was, you know, kind of flashing forward and flashing backwards. And it's not easy to get that to um, sit well in television, really, or, or, or on the screen, basically. So that's how Michael came on board. Right. Michael, what was it about about the project that sort of caught your imagination? And, and you know, I guess reading the scripts, um, you know, for a psychological thriller, how easy is it for you to, I guess, set that initial visual style that you might want to follow, particularly, I guess, if it's um, quite a fragmented storyline, as, as these dramas sometimes are? Well, I'm, I am fascinated by the idea that, that we all carry our pasts around with us, like a sort of suitcase or, or like a backpack. And so to have a sort of reason to to see that past from a sort of central character and also for that character to question the you know reliability of her recall of her of her of her sort of memories which happens in our story because she's had a brain injury and that is you know sort of one of the characteristics is something which I think is really really fascinating so to play a sort of thriller in that sort of context is is something which to me feels very layered and very psychological and I did a I did a drama actually a couple of years after any human heart called the fear with uh, with Peter Mullen and he was he was he was a you know sort of Brighton gangster who was you know sort of suffering from Alzheimer's and so, so the idea is that he wasn't sure about his own past. And I've been interested to kind of re, you know, sort of revisit that terrain because I think it's so rich and so interesting. And so, so this story really, really kind of affected me. I was really kind of fascinated by it. And as Gina said, the whole kind of idea uh, of the menopause and the fact that this is something that happens to to the Connie Nielsen character or has happened during that year, during that year that she can't remember. So she's sort of excavating that is something that's really, really interesting, really fascinating. And I thought, you know, this is a whole whole new ground that you know TV drama doesn't really explore. You know, I, you know the idea of a woman at that particular age going through the menopause. I haven't seen that before. So again, the idea of doing something that that, that kind of explores new areas is is something which I think you know sort of makes the project more interesting. And you know, and and uh, and Christopher Eccleston character, Christopher Eccleston plays um, you know Sir Connie Nielsen's husband. So that that's also a very interesting dynamic. And I think for me, what what's interesting about drama is actually getting under the skin of a character, getting inside their heads. And this is what we try to do with this with this series. Can you can you talk a bit to um, I guess Angela's approach to adapting the novel and for people who have, have read it, will they see large departures or have you had to, you know, reframe it in quite a, a, a different way to fit a, a six-hour structure? I think Angela, as the writer, has a really lovely combination of kind of creating a sort of an emotional, uh, you know, scene of, of, of kind of getting inside character heads, but also she has a has a really wicked sense of humour. And I think it's a sort of combination of those two things. The things that become situationally funny in a very dark, almost Cohen, Cohen Brother-esque way is, is something which Angela, as a writer, is very good at. And I think one of the one of the things that we were able to do during the lockdown it was you know the one silver lining of the lockdown was that we were able to spend more time than we thought we were going to have initially of actually sort of excavating the subject matter and going back into the scripts and and trying to sort of make them make them sing as much as as possible and so the process of working with Angela was was fantastically enjoyable because we really got to kind of you know sort of play around with things and get even deeper into into our central characters and I think the themes um you know the themes in the book remain in the TV series but you know I think like most adaptations it's um you know, we've, there's stuff that, you know, we've embraced and stuff that we've had to manoeuvre to, to fit six-hour structure and to kind of, you know, also bringing in um, some of the smaller characters to kind of tell the story forward and stuff like that. But, you yeah, know, I think people who've read the book will be will be pleased. And and you mentioned then, you know, Michael joined sort of end of 2019, I guess early 2020, uh, and we all know now what was lying in wait for you trying to get a TV production off the ground. So talk to us a bit about, you know, just, I guess, the first few months of last year and, and where were you? 
you at when kind of the first British lockdown hit in March and and how did you then take the project forward? Well, I mean, we we, we thought we were going to be shooting in, in May, wasn't it, Gina? Was it May that we thought we yeah, were going to shoot? Yeah, that was the plan. So we started, yeah, we started straight out of the, in January with the plan to shoot straight away. I mean, we did come out of Christmas in the full knowledge that COVID was you know, I mean, I don't think any of us thought it was going to sort of come to the UK or get so close and all the rest of it. So, um, you know, while we were aware of it, you know, there was definitely a, a moment there where we were like, I'm sure we'll be fine. You know, I'm sure, you know, it won't won't impact on us too much. But it kind of escalated very quickly. And I think for us, it was probably the moment that um, Italy shut its borders. I right. seem to remember in my head that Italy shut down, went into lockdown. And I think that was the point that everyone went, ah, okay, right. So this is that. That's pretty close. That's kind of near and we could be in a problem here. So, I mean, our shoot was relatively contained in the fact that of a 14 week shoot, at least half of it was always going to be filmed in Rob and Joe's house um, where the family come in. And so, um, you know, we there was a certain amount of us that would be contained. So I think we thought we'd probably be able to keep going to a degree because we were quite a, we weren't a huge crew. Um, a lot of us was quite contained uh, apart from some going to the coast to do that so but when suddenly um everything locked down um yeah we we, we down tools and stopped along with everybody else the whole the whole country so i mean i, I think certainly true you know in terms of the of, of the production process things like casting were obviously you know sort of went from being actors in a room to casting through zoom and i think as soon as we knew that that you know we, we worked on the basis that we were going to get this thing up and running as soon as we could you know that's what we did so most of the cast is is you know what you know most of the casting was achieved online and i think you know and i do think that you know that is a shift in, in approach because certainly when I cast an actor I you know I, I want to be in the room with them I want to sort of you know sort of get that that sense of danger that you get from an actor sometimes if that's the part that they have to play you know that that kind of personal connection so I mean it was you know it was it was a different experience but I think everyone very quickly got got used to that you know likewise with the carrying on with the script development during the lockdown you know we you know we got used to kind of zooms every afternoon you know sort of three and a half hour zooms and you know and you you adapt to that so I think it was a question of adapting and, and embracing it so when you were going to I guess prepared to come into filming after the first lockdown here in the UK. Um, you know, obviously there are lots of issues about insurance and, and I guess industry questions about how you might actually film again. Um, so, what were some of the challenges that you faced on this show? And you know, at what point did you, were you, did you feel able to overcome them to actually then get into production? It's quite interesting looking back, of course, on everything um, because we were constantly kind of having these endless conversations about well, we need to shoot by this date because Connie has to go on to do this or Chris has to go on to do that. And of course, in hindsight, nobody was going on to anything at all last year. But it was quite interesting kind of constantly trying to move the schedule around to sort of hit things people were tied into, uh, which sort of slowly fell away. One of the advantages that we did have was that as a, we uh, not being a studio picture, as it were, or not by one of the bigger kind of SVODs, because obviously we're financed by Viaplay um, and with Channel 4, um, was that actually for us, the only way we could get back up and running is if we got our insurance back in place. Now, obviously, some of the bigger studios kind of run their own sort of insurance kind of policies as it were but we had to find a way to placate and appease our insurance company now we had insurance in place before we started for the lockdown so by the very nature of the fact that covid was not excluded it was included um so we were covid covered um now we were covid covered up until the point where like i say it was included because it wasn't excluded but as we sort of 
came started to come out of lockdown, there became more and more and more exclusions as to things that we, you know, any kind of additional finance or additional people or additional everything was all suddenly excluded. But everything that was pre-lockdown was included. So we sort of had enough insurance, as it were, to be able to carry on. We did, however, come back with some quite strict rulings on our insurance to do with statement of health forms, that sort of stuff. Because I think when we came back out the blocks, it was super early on. I mean, we were probably one of the first productions to be up and running. So we were absolutely, I mean, if I had one more conversation with the insurance company about uncharted waters and, you know, kind of territory that nobody's been in before. Um, So it did mean that we were all slightly scrabbling um, to try and find a way forward and try and find a way to make everybody happy that we were going to be as safe as possible. Also, you know, none of us had ever been on a set, you know, that was as, uh, you know, had the sort of pressures of uh, risk assessment and everything that we had to do. Um, So it was a learning process completely. But, you know, we were a relatively small crew um, of sort of 80 was our sort of basic. So it wasn't too bad to get safe. And also, like I say, we were also a relatively contained space for seven weeks, Michael. Six weeks, which was in, was in, you know, was in this one location, which is, is the longest period of time I've ever spent in one in one single location um but it didn't mean that the insurance company were you know it was it was it was easier to kind of you know we were minimizing risk by the fact that we weren't moving everybody around which was just by the nature the luck for us the nature of our our shoot and our and our, and our the, the project that we were doing really so it all played to our advantage which meant that we could actually shoot you know pretty early on out of lockdown I mean I think that was one of the wonderful things that just by sheer fluke you know we were making something that was kind of more covid friendly than if we would have had sort of six thousand mm-hmm. rampage horsemen or or something like that you know so you know that you know we weren't sort of adapting or trying to change the script in order to fit you know the covid mm. circumstances it, it, you know it is what the script is and what you know it also made it easier to i mean we did also make we had very uh, well a lot of conversations about the content and covid and you know when people come to watch this it will be in a post pandemic mm. world or a, a a different world so therefore do we say that actually these people were coming out of the pandemic were in the pandemic not in the pandemic and we actually chose um, because we were so close to filming originally that to try and sort of um, weave in the pandemic actually would be distracting and also wasn't sort of relevant to the core of the story anyway so um, and actually by the fact that we were contained in this house actually made it a lot easier for us to carry on and tell the story not so much in a non-pandemic world but in a kind of sort of you know parallel to just carrying on um so we yeah we sort of made a decision not to reference it at all now from a filming point of view it was the majority of the time was absolutely fine because we did very little exterior shooting but when we were down in Hastings where we did our first two weeks of shooting it was a there was a couple of things there one was you know where you would normally let like people walking back and forth in the background you would normally let that just happen also because we were contemporary but of course people are wearing masks so there'd be a certain amount of like okay you know where you wouldn't normally hold the traffic or hold people we were sort of having to do that or at least you know kind of so that went out also we did have a slight problem that when we our show is set um really sort of mainly october november december and when we went down to hastings they had we had the most bizarre heat wave down there so not only were people wandering around with face masks on they were wandering around in shorts and and uh, i guess michael in, in terms of filming then what was it like for you i guess having to keep people socially distanced or did you 
you have actors in bubbles and, and people were being tested so you know you knew well, who you could work with so those any of us that came in contact with the actors uh, and we were called the close contact cohort we were all you know, tested twice a week you know the full kind of PCR test you know which is I felt was a bit like having a double espresso kind of twice a week really it kind of wakes you up so you know there was that there was everyone was wearing masks there was people sort of going around with hand sanitizer all that kind of stuff um, in terms of the actual what the actors were actually doing how close they were to each other that really wasn't impacted uh, our insurance allowed us to do all the things that we would have done ordinarily so for example our actors are in bed with each other we have sex scenes all this sort of stuff you know we have a sort of dancing scene in a in a, in a large kind of ballroom so all that is kind of what would happen normally but everyone had to be tested <laughs> And, and we had to make sure that people who were not in that inner cohort, close contact cohort, were not in the same place as, as the actors at the same time. You know, so there was there was quite sort of strict adherence to that. Everybody had to have a temperature check every day. Everybody had to fill out a health declaration form every single day. So nobody was allowed past the sort of main barrier unless they, 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 that had been ticked off. So, um, you know, and we had to ask people to obviously to be as respectful to, to, to the crew and to themselves and to the to to the job as they could be uh, by maintaining keep minimizing their own risk I mean in 14 weeks of shooting not one member of our cast or crew tested positive mm. so it was extraordinary we had a couple of small step downs and both of them were due to extraneous tests which kind of impacted us but not in a way that we had to shut down we just had to sort of take a step to make sure that 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 everybody was clear was clear before we carried on so over a 14 week period we had three days I think of, of, of when we didn't shoot of insurance claim to kind of carry on so but there was there was bonuses to this uh, absolutely I mean we had a really great core team on set that was probably a little bit tighter than you know it would normally be and actually I think it worked to an advantage and there was not a lot of people hanging around I mean that is the thing that it was very very disciplined who actually needed to be on the set you know sort of particularly when you're not filming inside large studio uh, spaces you know you're filming inside houses and you know and offices and whatever it it was very useful knowing that everyone who was there had to be there in terms of speed. And it was great on the unit base as well. So we, you know, we, we, we moved the unit base. So we didn't have a production office. We moved the unit base wherever we were. So people didn't have, we minimised the amount of travel backs and forwards into other spaces. And then even on the unit base, we, we worked a really good system with, you know, who was allowed on which trailer, who wasn't allowed on which trailer, who was allowed in the production office with a mask or without a mask. So, you know, it worked really well. And then like Michael said, we had these COVID assistants as well who were constantly going around kind of making sure people were um, used um, hand disinfectant and making sure people had their masks on for, uh, if they'd taken them off for any particular reason put them back on again I have to say one of the things that I is something that I probably would take forward as well is I thought the cohort system worked really well but I think the catering system worked really well as well we didn't have endless kind of food hanging around for people to just help themselves you know all that sort of craft service thing because it was just you know too easy for transferring um, potential risk we didn't have one coffee machine that everybody was constantly, you know, kind of trying to touch and all the rest of it to make teas and coffees for themselves. We had a one dedicated person making the teas and coffees. So I think there was a lot of stuff that actually worked really well. And, um, you know, with the, the, on the catering side, I think it was a really good and people seemed to be quite happy about it. Obviously, we're, we're all hoping that we're hopefully coming out of uh, out of this period and, and into a new normal, I guess. But w- what were some of the lessons that you learned from production in the, you know, in the height of the pandemic, really, and, and that you would take forward to new projects assuming that there's going to be still some level of restriction 
for a, you know a, a considerable amount of time. Well, I think that the, I think that the, the sort of the cohort grouping thing. All my colleagues I know that have been working on productions have said that they felt it's worked really well actually. And actually, you know, I think we probably would try to run a system moving forward where you know we, we sort of minimise the people that are hanging around and are on set. I do think the new that this way of catering is is great, and I think and maybe because just waste less food. I mean, it's driven me mad for years and years the amount of food that gets wasted. So you know, I think that side of it. Um, but yeah, I think everything everything just seemed to be. I think over the years everything has expanded and expanded and expanded with the amount of equipment, amount of people, the amount of time and thing. And then suddenly we were forced into a situation where you know we had to keep everything to a minimum, minimum amount of equipment around, minimum amount of moving of equipment. Um, and actually, I think you know that has actually made everybody go, oh, okay, well we can do it like this. Let's 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 try and especially on the lower budget stuff that you know kind of the tighter budget rather. Gina Carter and Michael Samuels talking to Michael Pickard. That's all for this episode. There'll be more from the podcast next week. But in the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening. 